Many people don't want to believe that the citizens of the southern states were willing to fight and die to preserve the morally repugnant institution of slavery. There has to be another reason, we are told. Well, there isn't. The evidence is clear and overwhelming. Slavery was, by a wide margin, the single most important cause of the Civil War. These are the words and opinions of retired Southern-born Army General Ty Siduli, who taught at West Point for two decades. He lays out his views in his book, Robert E. Lee and Me, subtitled, A Southerner's Reckoning with the Myth of the Lost Cause. General Siduli, the, the quote that I used in the introduction was from your introduction page from the five-minute talk you gave on Prager University in 2015. Why did you decide to use that as a way to open up your book? Well, I I think because history is dangerous. And I realized that when I gave that talk, um, (laughs) the Army investigated me for political speech. Uh, The Nation, which is a left-leaning organization, said I was a propagandist for the Army. Stars and Stripes said I was too close to a political organization. My my boss at West Point called me in and asked me what the heck I was doing. So just for saying the Civil War is about slavery. So I, I did that because I knew it, it told me something about how to tell a story because I just tried telling the, the country or just anybody that the Civil War is about slavery. And I got death threats to my West Point email address. So I opened it because – because I wanted people to know that history is dangerous because it goes after our myths and our identities. And when somebody challenges those myths, the reaction can be ferocious. As you know, there's a publication that all military people read called Stars and Stripes. And I'm looking at a headline from August the 12th, 2015. Viral video about Civil War's cause puts West Point close to right-wing group. And you know they're talking about Prager University. What was what was the reason that you decided to do this on Prager University? And for those who don't know what that is, that's a university online named after Dennis Prager, who's a conservative radio talk show host from Los Angeles. And he has set this website up that has an enormous amount of videos on it. Why did you agree to do it? Well, I, my publicist did. So I had published a book called The West Point History of the Civil War, and I had done a bunch of radio interviews for it. Nothing, you know, nothing big. But uh, the publicist said, hey, we have this person that wants to, to do that, do this. And, and I, I looked at three of the videos on there, the history ones, and they, you know, they weren't uh, outrageous. I uh, probably should have looked a little bit more closely. But but uh, but the other thing was, did they said, will you uh, uh, can I have complete editorial control? I said, whatever you write, we'll put in as long as it's not over five minutes. And I said, great. Uh, so I thought it was an opportunity to say the Civil War is about slavery, and I didn't think that much more about it. And frankly, I'm still fine with having done it because uh, it got my message out to people that may not have heard that message otherwise. So, uh, And they did allow me complete editorial control to say that uh, the citizens of the southern states um, fought uh, the, the Civil War to protect and expand slavery, and that many people don't want to believe that anymore. So, uh, yeah, that's why I, I did it, <laughs> probably because I didn't quite know enough. But I, I do think that getting your message out in a variety of formats is fine. And to say something that is as uh, really unchallengeable as that the Civil War is about slavery is not a political statement, nor did I make a political statement. So uh, I'm happy I did it and glad that it got to the listenership that it did. I checked this morning when uh, I was getting ready for this, and there were 2.9 million views on the particular site that I saw. And in the article from Stars and Stripes, they said you had 4 million views on Facebook when you did this. Why did people react so strongly, do you think? Yes, and Brian, it has 34 million right now. So between (laughs) Facebook and YouTube, 34 million. I mean, I think it's the most watched history lecture in history. Well, I think they people were I, I provide cognitive distance because I'm wearing my army blue uniform with the eagles of the full colonel wearing the bling that I, uh, uh, you know, bling of, of medals that I've gotten over a 30 plus year career. And they just weren't ready to hear that what was the academic consensus from a white southern army officer. And it, it goes again. History's dangerous and, and it challenged people's myths and identities. And I mean, not only did I get death threats to my West Point email address. Man, there's a whole website making fun of my looks 
And, and granted, I have a face made for radio, you know, as Fred, as uh, great Fred Allen used to say. Nonetheless, it was it, it, it really touched people. It was also because it came a month after the massacre uh, in Charleston at uh, Emanuel African uh, uh, Methodist Episcopal Church uh, by that white supremacist who had been waving the, the flag. I, I, I recorded it months before that, but it came out after. And I think that people realize that the Confederate flag meant then and the same thing it means now, which is support for a white supremacist society. And, and I think that, that that caught people unawares that the, the link between the two were so um, uh, uh, so tight. Let me work back so we can bring people up to date of where you are right now. Uh, when did you retire from the military? I retired in January of 2020. You retired as a general. When you made this speech, you were a colonel. When did you make general? Well, the, the, I made general as I retired. So the, the West Point has this uh, 28 slots for professors, United States Military Academy. For those that served in the Army, we each have a branch. I started out as armor. Then at West Point, I became professor. And it's a, uh, it's a job that is, uh, goes through the president, uh, nominated by the Second Army, and then is approved by the Senate individually. So when I retired, I became a brigadier general. How many years did you teach at West Point? Uh, almost 20. And what did you teach? Uh, I taught military history. I taught the history of West Point. I did uh, uh, mainly various forms of military history. You know, West Point has been teaching military history to cadets since since uh, 1817. In fact, we've been writing our own text. And the book that I that I was a part of, along with many others, this West Point history of warfare, included the West Point history of the Civil War. So we have been writing history for cadets for that long. And that was the main course I taught, the history of the military art, which goes back to the early part of the 19th century, one of the oldest continuously taught courses in America. Wonderful. I mean, I loved teaching cadets. You know, West Point has a mission to educate, train, and inspire leaders of character for the nation who live the values of duty on our country. I was so proud uh, to be associated with that mission and that institution. Where are you today and what are you doing for your uh, living now? Yeah, I am at Hamilton College, Go Continentals, uh, which is in upstate New York. It's a jewel of a, a small liberal arts college. I'm a history professor here. Uh, and, you know, in, I also uh, am the uh, vice chair of the National Naming of the Congressional Naming Commission, which will rename uh, the, uh, the, the posts named after Confederate officers. So things like Fort Bragg, Fort Hood. I read somewhere where you, it may have been in your book where you say that you had to. By the time you got involved in all this and your opinions on Robert E. Lee and the Confederates that you had lost most of your southern accent, did you ever have a strong southern accent when you were raised in the south? I did have a much stronger one. My, my dad, who is 90 and still alive, has got this wonderful bourbon-soaked – I mean, he, he doesn't drink that much, but he just has sort of this Shelby Foot uh, uh, accent. He is actually originally from Mississippi. So, yeah, I did have a much stronger one. But, you know, after so many – after more than 35 years in the Army, I mean, uh, my blood runs green now. Uh, and so that that living all over the world and all over the country uh, really smoothed that out. And, I, you know, I, I married uh, a, a, an Air Force brat. Her, her dad went to West Point. So that also contributed to it. So uh, I don't think I have much now. But, yeah, one time I certainly was much stronger than I am now. How well has Robert E. Lee and me, the book, sold? You know, I mean, it didn't make the bestseller list, but it has sold – steadily, and, which I think is amazing. I, I certainly didn't think that would happen, um, but it has sold well. Uh, I mean, I, I'm, again, I'm not, I'm not going to quit my day job, but what, what is what is really given me great um, – uh, uh, what I love the most is how many people have reached out to me to say, you know, either I grew up that way, revering Lee or the lost cause, um, or I, too, grew up th that way, or other people that said, gosh, I've been looking for somebody to say what I've been thinking. Uh, so it, uh, the, while the sales have been solid, I don't think they've been spectacular. The reaction I've got has been uh, really wonderful. And I think I've been able to reach a lot of people that otherwise I wouldn't have been able to reach because I don't use do just a history book. It's really a, um, you know, it's a memoir with history. So using my own story, I think I, I, hopefully I was able to reach a larger audience than just being sort of a know-it-all historian. I've heard you say that if you had to give a number to Robert E. Lee on a scale of 1 to 10, he'd be 11. Jesus might be a 5. Why did you think that way, and was there a moment where this switched for you? 
Well, yes. Yeah, so that is absolutely true. I mean, I grew up not just not just thinking he was great, but revering him. And every part of my culture did that. The first book I read was Meet Robert E. Lee, where Lee looks like he's a god on loan from Mount Olympus with his horse traveler underneath him going off into the distance and the huge Confederate flag behind him. Um, the textbooks I got from uh, that Virginia gave me as, a, as an elementary school teacher, this, most of the Civil War was about Robert E. Lee. Um, but where my dad taught Episcopal High School in Alexandria, Virginia, had the, the descendants of Lee there. I went to Washington and Lee University because I because the reason I revered him is because I wanted to be an educated Christian gentleman. That's who I wanted to be. And so uh, he was the religion of the lost cause and of Lee was much stronger in Virginia where I was than than even though I went to church every Sunday as a good Episcopalian. Uh, Lee was the revered figure of the White South and. Uh, so, yes, I, I absolutely revered, uh, believed that he was uh, someone to emulate, and I certainly wanted to to emulate him as a child growing up in Virginia. And so when did that change for me? Well, it changed for three reasons. The first is uh, my identity after graduating from the, uh, Washington Lee became Army officer. Uh, when I raised my right hand and gave that oath, uh, over time, I began to identify more as an Army officer. And that Army officer is that oath. It's so valuable, so amazing to me, which is to support and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. So that became a part of my thing. The second thing is I married a woman who was incapable of lying. And I grew up in a, in a lying culture. I mean, it was a complete lying culture to say that Confederates were the greatest, sol- greatest soldiers of all time. Hey, they lost. Second, their cause was noble, but, but, but they lost. No, the cause was evil. Um, and so that was another thing. And the third was, as a historian, that changed me as I started reading about the Civil War. But the thing that really changed me is when I was at West Point living on Lee Road in Lee Gate by Lee Housing Area, um, and I went by Lee Barracks, and I wondered why were these things named after him? And, it, and then I went, I went tearing around campus, and there were more than a dozen things named after Lee, and I wondered why. And then I went and looked at the evidence of that. And at, at West Point in the 19th century, Lee was banished from memory as a traitor. So when did all these things come to be named after Lee, the 1930s, 1950s, 1970s, as a reaction to integration, when the first black cadet came back after 50 years in 1930s, when the army integrated in the 1950s, when black uh, cadets come in by the dozens now instead of individually in the 1970s, that's when we renamed them. And that ticked me off so much that we would, that that, that I realized that Confederate monuments are either A, uh, a, a, a sign of white supremacy or the same side, the different side of the same coin, a reaction to integration. So those things together made me turn and then turn hard. In your acknowledgments, you say, I needed the best damn lawyers in the Army to ensure I could talk about subjects that made some leaders at West Point and the Pentagon uncomfortable. Give us more on that. Well, sure. Uh, when when so I was in charge of the memorialization committee uh, and uh, the, the memorialization committee at West Point, we um, I had this idea to create a, uh, a memorial room to the West Point graduates who died. We didn't have one single place for all those who gave the last full measure of devotion, as Lincoln would say, from the War of 1812 through the War on Terror. And during the War on Terror, we lost over 100 graduates killed at West Point. I mean, we were really rocked by the amount. And just, just sort of as a side note on that, in World War One, Yale had over 9,000 people serve in World War One, and uh, 10 times the number killed, Yale graduates killed during World War One as West Point grads. Fast forward in the wars on terror, uh, West Point lost over 100, Yale zero. So we wanted, we needed some way to recognize that. So I had to come up with a plan, I got the money, I got everything together to, to put, to repurpose one room to be our memorial room. The question was, which graduates should go in there. And I argued, by this time I had changed completely, that the, the Confederates shouldn't go in because they renounced their oath, they killed U.S. Army soldiers, they tried to destroy the United States of America for the worst possible reason to create a slave republic. And by the way, the building that they were in was donated by an ardent anti-Confederate who said he would never forgive those who forgot the flag to follow false gods. I had a slam dunk argument. So I go in there to our leadership and they say, oh no, Ty, we want to bring people together. We don't want to be like the Sunni and the Shia fighting for generations, which is the worst historical analogy in the history of the world. And so I lost and, um, and, and they were going to put these Confederates in. And so I, you know, I, so that's one reason. So they just, they, they couldn't stand me. In fact, I had another leader that said, Ty, listen, putting Confederate names into our memorial hall has nothing to do with race. 
going, oh my gosh. So, um, and then, so then I, I, I published some things on this and every time I try to publish it, you know, I would get pushback also because I was the leader of the history department, you know, anything I did reflected on the history department as a whole. And so that, that those were some things. Uh, uh, another thing was that when the Trump administration came in, you know, they wanted to keep these, these post names. So the names of these posts are named after really terrible generals who fought against their country. And I started talking about that and, 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 and that was unpopular as well. So, you know, the academic freedom is we have it at times at West Point, but I'm in uniform and I don't have, when I was in uniform, I didn't have the freedom to do that. So I certainly had uh, senior leaders at West Point that did not want to talk about this and did not want me to talk about it and made it difficult for me to, to, to publish. And I, I could not, I like right now, to, to, to have written a book and just to talk to you would have required me to get permission from public affairs, from Army lawyers and everyone else. So now I've got this thing, Brian, called the First Amendment. Oh, my gosh. Glorious, glorious thing that I can talk to who I want and what I want. And Hamilton College has been nothing but supportive. So, yeah, I am, I am a happy civilian right now to be able to talk openly about traitors for slavery. Well, talking about lying and all, um, and I know the military has to be subservient to the civilians. But over the years, we've heard a lot. I mean, start with the Vietnam War. I mean, you can go back to certainly to wars before that. But one of the the objections to this day is that the generals were lying to us, lying to the civilians in order to cover their you-know-what. Um, is this a problem from your perspective, having been in the military for, what, 33 years or something like that? Yeah, uh, 35 years, eight months in a day. Uh, but I think yes and no. Um Part of it is, is that at least with history, I mean, that's my field, is that they just don't know what they don't know. And they grew up with these lost cause myths the same way that I did, the same way that many white people did. And so they didn't understand what the history was. Uh, and there's also people that don't see historians as having real expertise. Everybody knows history because everybody went to school and got this. Everybody thinks they know about the Civil War. So there's, a, there's an idea that, that, that at least among that historians don't have the expertise for that. Um, and then there's the other part is, is that they, people, I mean, the army officers do not want political problems. Nobody, they don't want something that particularly about culture that is going to rile people. And so they think that they're, they're, they're doing something that won't rile people, uh, that they don't want that kind of publicity. And because they're always, particularly the army is always worried, you know, about, about politicians looking at West Point or anything else and saying, oh my gosh, you're being political, uh, and we're going to punish you for that. So there, there are a bunch of ways. And, and by the way, the Army does that. If there is anything that, that happens, then you're going to be investigated. Uh, and, and our senior generals are investigated all the time, over, sometimes over nothing. So they are very gun-shy about things that have to do with politics and with coming out on, uh, with a, uh, uh, any sort of opinion that, that, that might garner some uh, negative publicity. They just, they just aren't in the business of doing that. And the problem with that is, is that it's hard to run a university uh, in the military, under the Army, under or the Air Force or Navy, um, we, and get, grant the sort of academic freedom that happens at most other places. It's just a very difficult thing for them to do. And we ran into the same issues when counterinsurgency. I had a colleague, uh, John Gentile, a great uh, historian who wrote against some of the counterinsurgency things. And when he wrote against that, he got in lots of trouble for doing that. So we're constantly trying to figure out where, where can somebody who's in the military write about public policy where it is uh, against some other some, somebody? And is it OK or is it not OK? And those are things that we're constantly battling. And, but I had a great lawyer named Jim Robinette at West Point who allowed me, who, who ensured that Big A Army and others would allow me the best he could to, uh, uh, to write freely. And he was in the military, Jim Robinette? He was. He was in the military. And I mean, just a great army lawyer and a very aggressive one that 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 allowed that when that when that first video came out, you know, when when uh, army came down, and said, hey, man, what is he doing? It's political speech. He said, no, this isn't political speech. He is doing the thing that is his in his area of expertise and he has academic freedom. And, and it shut down what would have been an investigation about that. Um, but but so it, it, it was a complicated thing to be in uniform, even if it's you're talking about history, because, again, history is political. It always has been. It always will be. And the thing about about history is is that culture um, trumps history. 
So your the people's culture, they will think of that as history. And when somebody says something different than that, then they will react. As we have seen, they'll react, react ferociously. And that happened time and again when we're talking about these base names particularly. What was the Army going to do if, I'm, if, if we're talking about uh, – a Fort Hood or Fort Bragg, are they going to say, yeah, we should change them because they're named after traitors for slavery? Well, you know, I mean, that that puts them in a, in a really awkward position. And so they came up with sort of a namby-pamby thing saying, you know, these are, these are named after Americans, not ideology. This was in 2015, which, of course, is just not true. But, I mean, the Army, I mean, I, I sympathize with them with a little bit because how do you do this when it's got to be a political decision to uh, to support changing the base names? So, you know, we start off by talking about Prager University and um, anybody that knows anything about Dennis Prager knows he's very conservative. Prager University is full of conservatives, including Candy Owens. And I'm sure that by now you now know how conservative they are. Were you surprised? Because most of the comments and there are tons of comments after your video are in support of you. Uh, are you surprised at that? And is there a political element to this? If you're a conservative, you're supposed to be pro-Confederate. And you know what I'm getting at. And and I'd be also interested for you to throw in your own politics if you if you can. Well, I am against traitors who fought to destroy their country uh, uh, for the worst possible reason, which is slavery. So, you know, I, I think that I don't think that is a political view. I mean, to me. Who likes people that killed U.S. Army soldiers? Who who possibly could like that? I don't like Rommel. I don't like uh, I don't like Mao. I don't like uh, uh, Cornwallis or 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 Santa Anna or Ludendorff. I mean, you name them all. Anybody that was in the business of killing U.S. Army soldiers is not somebody that I that it's going to be an enemy to me because I, I can't separate my identity from U.S. Army soldier. And an historian and American; those are those are the same things to me. And so I just I, I can't understand why anybody would want to. And then if, if, if why did they kill U.S. Army soldiers for the worst? As Grant said, the worst possible reason, you know, which is to create a slave republic. So to me, it is an it is not a political idea to say that. And to and, and then by the way, they, then they chose treason, which is there's only one crime in the Constitution that is to. Uh, um, uh, levying war against the United States is the only crime, and that is what treason is. It's a very limited crime at that. So I don't get why anybody would think that uh, that conservative – why would a conservative think that the, that the Confederacy is great? I, I just don't get it at all. So um, my that that's my point of view, and I think Dennis Prager was right to say um, – to, to put that on there and say, listen, we're for Americans. We're for the United States of America. We're patriots. And I think the idea that one political party could wrap themselves in the flag and not allow the other to do that is just wrong. So, in fact, when I'm zooming people, I got the U.S. flag in the background because I will not let anybody say that uh, that that their patriotism is less than mine. So and as far as my politics, I mean, my politics don't matter at all. Um, I'm not registered with any party because I, I was a soldier for, for the, most of my career. Uh, but this subject is not about politics. It's about the United States of America and the and and who fought for our values and who fought against them. And the Confederate values, which is slavery, 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 is against everything that I hold dear. Go back to your early years. Born in Alexandria, Virginia, <clears throat> spent time in Monroe, Georgia, and other places around the country. But go back to your father, and he was a teacher. Why didn't he get the same message you got? Well, it, you know, my, my he's a history teacher, and because you got to remember how how uh, how how strong the Lost Cause message is. He was born in 1931. How strong that message was uh, up until very recently. So, you know, he tells a story about racing with his brother uh, in uh, I don't know, in Biloxi, Mississippi, racing to church, uh, Episcopalian church, and he would race with his brother to sit in this one pew. Why one pew? This pew because that was the pew uh, where, that had a sign above it that said. Here sat during church service Jefferson Davis, the first and only president of the Confederacy. Um, so he grew up that, and yet he taught things like um, uh, Kenneth Stamps, the Peculiar Institution, the Strange Career of Jim Crow by C. Van Woodward. He taught those things, and we he was there at Episcopal when we integrated, and we used to have black students come over to the house all the time. 
Um, so, uh, so I, it, it, but, but the thing about it is, is that somehow, and I grew up this way too, is that you could have, understand that the Civil War is about slavery and still honor and, and, and venerate Robert E. Lee and say, well, yeah, I'm glad the Confederates lost, but they were noble. They were great. And so we also had the four flags of Confederacy over the mantle. We had Lee and Jackson in the house as well. So there was this, and I don't, you know, and I, I mean, I wish I could say, I don't know how he did it, but I did it too for way too long of having both those thoughts in the same. I remember ro- watching Roots and reading the book Roots, um, which, you know, is about, about how awful the slave era is. But I just, it didn't get into my heart. And now, you know, I read the accounts of slavery and I understand the deep immorality, the evil nature of slavery. And so, you know, I think about, uh, my kids are married now. I don't have grandkids yet. I'm working on that hard. Fortunately, it doesn't really care. It doesn't really matter how far I work on it. But, but nonetheless, my grandkids um, uh, will not get this, this same understanding. And yet, if I was in the enslaved era, most white boys had their first sexual experience with an enslaved girl. And, 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 and uh, uh, remember that enslaved, that, that enslaved women would have babies of their white masters. And then these white men, who are the fathers and grandfathers, would sell their own children away from them. I mean, the, the, the stench of immorality on the slave era is just so strong that we as Americans, I don't think we've come to grips with just how awful it is. There's a reason why black people that, that trace their heritage to the enslaved era are about 20% of their DNA is European. That's because of the endemic nature of the rape culture in, in, uh, in the slave era. So, yeah, I mean, my dad certainly grew up with it. His dad grew up with it. This is a hundred years of, um, of, of, of myths and lies that infected the American population and eventually not just the South, but the entire nation. What does your dad think of this project you've been involved in? Yeah, my dad's 90 years old now and uh, he lives in Florida and he loves me more than he loves Robert E. Lee. Uh, so, which is great, you know, for a while there, I, I mean, I, I think that's always been true, but you know, I mean, the, the, he used to say, you know, my name is, I've got a funny last name, uh, and I, I'm someone who is, I think both of us always wanted to have that status as gentlemen, even though, you know, we didn't come from any of the, the these families of the South that, uh, that, you know, with four names or with a name like that, 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 uh, that, that is a, one of those old South names, but we, we didn't have that, um, you know, uh, children of immigrants in a way, but wanted that status that came with that. Uh, but now, I mean, he says that, you know, Todd, love you, but love the, love the book. I'm proud that you've done it. Um, uh, so he's been very supportive of me. Uh, but again, you know, that also shows that it's it, it, we anybody can change at any time if you just let the facts, let the evidence um, get into your brain and into your heart. Can you think of a couple of incidences when somebody was furious with you to your face that you were taking this position? Yeah, a couple, several times. Um, uh there were. I, I gave a talk at uh, at the Kennedy Center um, right before the, the the opera Appomattox. We took some cadets down there. This was maybe 2016, maybe. And I told uh, and, I, and and I did the same talk. I gave a talk in Atlanta. So both Atlanta and and there 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 where I gave a talk saying uh, Lee was a traitor. And um, and you know I had number of gentlemen, particularly I remember this one in Atlanta who got up a distinguished looking gentleman, you know, uh, with that, with that, again, that Shelby foot bourbon soaked accent. Why Colonel, uh, I don't think that you have mentioned any evidence at all that the civil war had anything to do with slavery. And sometimes my, you gotta be, uh, sometimes my Southern accent, uh, veers toward foghorn leghorn, you know, <laughs> but, but, <laughs> but, uh, um, but but he was just uh, saying that. And I, I talked about the secession documents and how the Civil War was about slavery for the first five minutes, but he just would not have it. Um, and I also got that at the, at the Appomattox premiere uh, at, at W&L when I gave the speech calling me a traitor for slavery in Lee Chapel. There were a number of people there uh, from the flaggers who are a group of neo-Confederates who have been putting enormous flags up around the countryside. They wear red pants uh, as well. So they were they were not happy. Um, but for the most part, most people, if they are unhappy, they wait and save it for social media. And there, whew, the number of one-star reviews I've got on Amazon or on Goodreads or, you know, those things, that, that's where they tend to come out uh, is, is on social media. Let me read you uh, a comment, and I have no idea whether any of this is correct or not, but you can deal with that. 
that was on the site below your video from Prager University. <clears throat> the guy signed it. His name's Ben Cruz. You may have seen this. He's, it takes a little bit to read this, but it says he says, riddle me this. If slavery was the primary reason for the Civil War, why did Robert E. Lee free his slaves before fighting for the Confederates? Why did Grant keep his slaves through the war? And why did the entire state of Delaware keep their slaves throughout the war? The Civil War was a total tragedy. Slavery was not going to survive the decade with or without the war. The South was going to rebel with or without slavery. And no poor man would fight a war to defend Social status. Go on, riddle me this, is what Ben Cruz said. What do you say to that, General? I say baloney. That's what I say. No. Um, uh, so, I mean, there's so there's so many wrong things there. I don't even know where to start. So let's talk. <laughs> let, we can start with Lee. Um, well, I mean, literally, you could I, I could just I could take that whole thing and give an entire 55 minute lecture on that. We could spend the rest of the time doing that. But I, I will try to be. I'll try to be a little bit more brief. So the first one is is Lee. So no one in the army benefited more from slavery than Lee did. Uh, Lee owned eight enslaved people from the time his mother died uh, up until about 1862, and he benefited from that. He hired them out, which meant he didn't keep them with him. He hired them out throughout the Virginia to take to reap the money for that. Um, the second thing is is that uh, anybody that fights for a slave republic, the only difference between the U.S. and the Confederacy is slavery. So if you fight for a slave republic, it's probably because you believe in it. The third thing is, is that the fact there are eight U.S. Army colonels from Virginia in 18, by June of 1861, seven of them remain with the United States. So Lee and Lee alone does that. And what makes him different about that? Well, from 18, late 1857 to early 1860, 1857, his father-in-law dies. That's George Washington Park Custis. And he takes two years paid administrative leave, twice as long as anybody else in the, in the Army had ever done in the entire antebellum army, goes back to Arlington and runs three uh, plantations, or as I like to call them, enslaved labor farms, uh, for that two and a half years. During that period, he whips the enslaved people. He refuses to recognize enslaved marriages. He hires people out. By the way, his father-in-law recognized marriages and refused to hire people out. In other words, to send them across the state of Virginia every January 1st for an entire year so that he could make the most money from it. Um, and, and so and he finally goes to court to try to keep those enslaved people, the 198 from, from his father-in-law past, um, the time where his father-in-law said he, sh- he should, he would have to free them, uh, and, and loses. And it's still a couple of months before he finally frees the last of them. So the idea that Lee was this kindly, uh, a person who wasn't for slavery is just not true. As for Grant, he, he was willed a, an enslaved person from his father-in-law, who was pro-slavery, and then he frees him well before the Civil War. Um, and so Grant does, has no enslaved people. Rem- also remember that during the Civil War, he leads an enslaving army. And that, what I mean by that is his entire logistics train is teamsters, cooks, seamstresses, nurses, uh, engineers. They are all enslaved people. So when he goes into, into Gettysburg campaign, he's got eight to 10,000 enslaved people that are his logistics. Yes, there are black people that are with the United States Army before 1863, but they're being paid. Uh, plus, his army is capturing free black people and then bringing them back to Virginia in the Gettysburg Campaign and Antietam and and uh, and free and and selling them back into slavery. So the idea that that Lee is not for uh, oh, and then by the way, one more thing is that after the Battle of the Crater in 1864, his army slaughters black POWs after the war. He says that, that, that I mean, he retains his racism. Now, lots of people were racist back then. But Lee is alone among Virginia colonels in, in, in being an enslaver and a cruel one at that. So, yeah, I got uh, – how's that? Is that good enough? I can go, I can go on longer if you want me to. <laughs> in, in your acknowledgments, you say, in particular, Michael Barlow's effort as a cadet to force West Point to acknowledge its past and demand more ex- inclusive future – uh, showed me how change can occur. Talk about Michael Barlow, and let me just throw this in. Percy Squire and David Bryce graduated from West Point in 1972 and led the fight against Nixon's Confederate monument. And give us some background on what that was. Yeah, I, I think I hope I can do my next book on that project. Uh, I, I've been looking at things that where the Army in particular, because that's what it's sort of the organization I know best, 
um, took a period of racial unrest and really tried to change, tried to get better and did get better and really went after the issues of racism in a way that I think we could learn from today. But in 19, so I'll do the first one first. In 1971, uh, Richard Nixon came to West Point at, a, at the nadir of the Vietnam War. He's getting out. Vietnamization is there. The army is falling apart with drug use, racial uh, racial uh, tension, um, uh, it's, it, it, uh, poor morale. It's terrible. Uh, the nation it just went through May 1971, where the uh, you know the largest uh, march on Washington, where I think the largest uh, mass arrest of, of, of people in American history, well over a thousand. So he is coming to West Point looking for just a little bit, a little break, and he gets it. He gets a great reception at West Point, but he goes on to Trophy Point, which is our uh, um, sort of our sacred ground where all of our monuments are. And and he gets a, a brief from the superintendent who says, uh, that our college president, there's a huge 70-foot monument to the uh, to those regular Army soldiers and, and officers who fought in the War of the Rebellion. That's the official name in the 19th century, the War of the Rebellion, not the Civil War. And Nixon says, well, where's the monument to the Confederates? And, and the soup says, well, gee. Um, Mr. President, we don't. We only have the ones who fought for the United States. We don't have a monument for those who fought against it. He said, well, I just came back from Alabama. You totally need to get one. And what he's saying there is he's doing the Southern strategy, which is he's worried about George Wallace, and Wallace is, uh, um, is doing so well. He's packing Madison Square Garden. Uh, and, and so he's worried about that. So here's put, a, put a, a Confederate monument on West Point. It would appeal to white Southerners or white people everywhere. Uh, and so he orders the soup to do this, and then he puts Al Haig, um, uh, who we later know as Secretary of State, um, in charge of. He's a one-star general working in the White House. And what are they going to do about this? Well, the superintendent tells uh, the senior-ranking black cadet, and all hell breaks loose. And the, the cadets write a manifesto based on the Attica uprising, uh, all the points that they want, um, and they get everything. I mean, they, 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 they get their hair can be long, which is a big deal to, to cadets back then. So afros become huge. Um, they, they get renamed the, the they said nothing is named after the black soldiers. So they renamed the, uh, the parade field after Buffalo soldiers who were there for 50 years, uh, training, uh, uh, uh training sol- uh, cadets on equestrian. Um, they get race relations training, everything that you could imagine. And then finally, um, uh, this goes up through the chain of command and Nixon so worried is worried about what the cadets are going to do because they threaten mutiny. But the best argument that these cadets have is if, uh, we are to leave the army right now and go fight for Black Panthers or something, and we died. Would you put up a monument to us? Because we would be fighting against our country with people that we have uh, both both region ties and racial ties for. Would you put up a, a monument to us? So this finally goes back up up to through uh, through uh, the army and through the White House, and it kills the monument. So these these black cadets stop Nixon. They defeat Richard Nixon. From from internal, nobody has ever heard about that story before. So I write a little bit about it in there. I hope to expand on that. And then the other one, Michael Barlow, who is an amazing, amazing uh, cadet now officer who came to me in uh, in when he was a, a plebe, a freshman, and said, you know, sir, I hate living in Lee Barracks. And we, again, we have a barracks named after Lee, and and we kind of talked it over. And I, I don't blame him for not doing that, but I didn't think there was a way to change that. But we had a new barracks coming, uh, 170 million dollar barracks. And it didn't have a name. And what Michael did was started something called Operation Tuskegee to name that after Benjamin O. Davis, Jr., the first black graduate of West Point in the 20th century. And uh, I was in charge of the memorialization committee, but he led this student effort, the cadet effort, and it worked. And um, in 20, I don't know when it was, 2017, something like that, um, they named our newest barracks. And that's our highest honor at West Point, Eisenhower, MacArthur, Grant, Sherman, uh, Pershing. These are Washington. Those are the name of the barracks or dormitories are named after West Point. And Michael Barlow made sure that there was one named after Benjamin o. Davis Jr. So he I, I uh, you know, I, I'm greatly uh, he is a captain in the Army now. Uh, I consider him a friend and and even a mentor in a way, just because he was so successful in challenging the system within the system without trying to do it for, for ego, but just to make a positive change. Okay, if I went to West Point today, would there be Lee Highway or whatever you called it, Lee Barracks, and uh, would the name Lee still be all over the place? It would be, uh, but it will not be there this time next year. Why? So, or well, maybe 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 it take a little bit longer than that. I'd say by the end of twenty. Well, because the National Defense Authorization Act of twenty twenty one said that uh, that the names of anything that honors 
of those who fought for the Confederacy, uh, who voluntarily fought for the Confederacy, uh, will have to be modified, changed uh, by the law that, by the way, not only was it passed by Congress, but because uh, President Trump vetoed it, it was uh, the veto was over it was overturned was uh, by a supermajority. So uh, all Congress in, 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 in more overwhelming numbers than anything else I can think of uh, said, no, we should not name our 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 posts or those barracks or anything in, in the in the Department of Defense after traitors for slavery. So those things are going to change. Uh, and uh, it's, certainly I am very proud to be a part of that effort that's doing that. Of course, we're, we're not really talking about that now because the commission is meeting. Uh, but the law, I mean, you can look up the National Defense Authorization Act law of 2021, and it's saying it's going to change. All those uh, forts and all will be re- renamed? All of them. And you talk about that. It's one of your chapters in the book where you talk about uh, Fort Bragg and, and Fort Hood and all those. Of all those forts that are named after Confederates, what's the one that stands out the most to you that's the worst person that uh, has has his name on one of those forts? Well, it's so hard because they are all really awful. So I, I just let me just give you a, a really quick snapshot. Uh, Fort Pickett, uh, Pickett, which is in Virginia, uh, was a war criminal who uh, massacred, who, who, who summarily executed 22 U.S. Army soldiers. Uh, Lee, Fort Lee is, is at, in Virginia and is at the most, it's the most diverse post. It's the most diverse workforce of anywhere in the country with 50% black soldiers and more than 20% uh, Hispanic soldiers. Uh, Fort Gordon in Georgia is uh, named after someone who uh, never served in the U.S. Army, who later led the KKK in Georgia. Uh, Henry Benning was tried to break apart the United States more than any other person starting in 1849. Polk in Louisiana is somebody who who uh, uh, well, not only was he the worst general, uh, he may have been the worst general on either side. And the, the old saying, the old saw about that was, how did he help? He said he helped the United He hurt the United States more by dying on the battlefield than anything else. So all they're all, they really are terrible. And I, I can't wait to change them. When you were growing up um, in the South, how often would there be racist talk uh, you used the word white, two words, white supremacy, a lot in your book. How often can you remember conversations around your house, around your friends, where people would lapse into anti-black talk? I think the time, the place that that happened the most for me uh, was in Georgia, uh, because I went to a SEG academy, and that SEG academy was created to ensure that white kids didn't have to go to school with black kids, and so the, it was. The SEG stands for SEG segregation. All- Stand for segregation. So in, in 1969, um, after the federal courts had ruled that, in fact, Georgia uh, schools would have to integrate um, throughout the Deep South, uh, and not just in the Deep South, but particularly in the Deep South, um, these Christian academies or segregation academies, SEG or SEGI academies, sprouted up like mushrooms. And uh, I think there were 400 of them that came up just in 1969. And, and that's where I went to high school. And so that would have been the place that was most like that. That was also this place where there was a the last mass lynching in American history to include one veteran in 1946. I knew nothing about that when I lived in Monroe, Georgia. So I would have to say that it was it was in Georgia that I most saw that because it was even though the town was 50 percent black people, um, I just never interacted with them except during a summer job uh, when I worked at an egg processing factory. But other than that, I just didn't have any. It was just such a segregated town, particularly for me, because I went to that segregation academy. And there I certainly heard the sort of racist talk that is so um, uh, so awful and I mean, so much a part of American history, but certainly something that uh, that I, that is just loathsome. Uh, it's loathsome. And I mean, I wish I could say it was anti-American, but it's not. It's a part of who we are. Uh, and it's something that we must confront if we're to ensure that we become the America we want to be. Take a second for someone who doesn't have a clue as to where West Point is and what it looks like and how big it is. Give us some background. How how far does it how how far does it uh, take you to go from New York City to West Point? And where is it? It's about an hour, um, uh, a little less than an hour from the George Washington Bridge on the northern part of Manhattan, and it is in the in the, in the Hudson Valley, and it is a gorgeous spot up on a bluff overlooking the Hudson River, where the Hudson River makes an S turn 
Um, uh, and it was picked. The reason it's there is George Washington picked it uh, to be a defensive position. He called it the key to the whole continent and put a defensive position there to ensure that the British, which had 14,000 soldiers in Manhattan, couldn't take the Hudson River. And the Hudson River was a key way during the American Revolution to ensure the uh, New England states could provide men, material, and money to the rest of, of the colonies. Uh, so it was absolutely uh, essential there. And they put a great chain, a 60-ton chain, floated on a boom across the Hudson River. So because of that, there are these uh, just unbelievably gorgeous views looking north, straight up the Hudson, uh, on this trophy point, which the reason it's called trophy, it has the trophies of war that America won in wars from the American Revolution through the uh, um, through the Spanish-American War. So there's three uh, got three cannons there, art, uh, artillery pieces, uh, that were that we captured at the Battle of Saratoga in 1777. One of those pieces has a uh, has a has an indentation where a cannonball smacked it. So the history there, and there are statues. Thaddeus Kosciuszko, who designed it, who designed the, the, the defensive fortification. There are statues of Washington, Patton, MacArthur. We just the newest one put up in 2019 is Grant. So you feel the history and the geography of America. Um, and as Teddy Roosevelt said about it, there's no other place that is as absolutely American as West Point. I, I, I felt so lucky to be a part of that organization and institution. I'm a professor emeritus of, of West Point, so I will always be associated with that, and I couldn't be more proud. And it is, you know, the American people um, provide the money to ensure that we have the finest military in the world, and the, that military, at least for the Army, starts at West Point where we graduate 1,000 cadets a year to become second lieutenants in the Army, and they serve for five years uh, in the United States Army. So uh, they they go there, they get a free education, but then they serve their nation. And so everybody has the same mission when you get to West Point, which is to serve the nation in peace and war. Um, It is an amazing place. Do the students get paid? They do. They get paid. Uh, as they will tell you, well, a lot of that money comes out the first couple of years for, to pay for computers and uniforms and, and other things. But they do indeed get paid. Um, and uh, they're and they're actually in the U.S. Army. When I was an ROTC cadet at, at, at Washington Lee, I was not in the Army, but they are actually on the rolls. All the cadets at the service academies are on the rolls of their uh, 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 services. So, in fact, if you are West Point and we don't have this happen often, but if you know if you do something really stupid like drugs or something else, um, you're part of the army. You could go to Leavenworth uh, to, you know, convicted because you're part of the United States military and the Uniform Code of Military Justice applies to you. Total number of cadets uh, at West Point? We have 4,417 cadets there, uh, 60 of whom are international cadets. They come from all all different countries all over the world, and they put on our uniforms. They have their name of their country on their name tape, but they, are, they get a West Point commission and then go back to the army of their origin, but yeah, forty four hundred seventeen, and these these slots come from uh, the, you get you get a, uh, a a nomination through your congressman, senator, vice president, president. Um, it's a it's a very difficult process in some ways to get a nomination uh, through that, but but it also it links to the American people because we have we have people from all fifty states, every territory, and every congressman, every senator has his student, his cadets that come there. So it's in a way it's so linked to the American people in every congressional district. Uh, that's another thing that makes it so remarkable is that all those congressmen and senators come up there to see their cadets. Uh, it, it's, uh, the link to the American people is just, it's more solid there than any other place I've ever been. What percentage of West Point cadets are minorities? Oh, this is a, a great story that um, when I was first there, it was about 6% was African-American. And by the time we uh, I left, it was at 15%, which you know is amazing. And uh, several of the, you know, I, I had criticized uh, leadership at West Point for many things, but I won't criticize them for that. They really went after, um, uh, and the admissions uh, department did as well, to make sure that uh, West Point looks like the American people, because that's who we represent. If we do not look like the American people, if we don't represent the American people in all regards, then we're away from our client. And that's who our client is in the U.S. Army, is the American people. So we're, it's about 15 percent African-American, which I couldn't be more proud of. And, of course, it doesn't mean that there aren't racial issues there. There are there because we also represent the American people. We have race issues in America. Um, but it is a, a, an extraordinary education. I will also say you get a great history education there. Let me just plug the Department of History at West Point, which is where I spent most of my – I spent all my time at West Point. Uh, amazing 
uh, dedicated faculty there uh, who uh, want to help educate and inspire leaders of character for the nation. What year did you graduate from Washington and Lee? I graduated in 1984, uh, and uh, we had 24 people uh, that graduated from there. I think almost all of them were on scholarship. Uh, There is no ROTC program there. Most of the small liberal arts colleges lost their ROTC programs uh, in the early 90s. Kind of a shame, but... Um, yeah, that, that, that 1984. So, yeah, served almost 36 years in the Army. And if you got in a car in Washington, D.C., how long would it take you to get to Washington and Lee? I think it's about three hours, maybe three and a half. It's uh, been a while since I've done that. Get on 81. It's right off of 81. Um, beautiful campus. Of course, it shares uh, uh, Lexington on the eastern spur of the hill with the, that Washington Lee is on is VMI. So these are two very southern, steep and southern uh, Lore. In fact, both of them very much uh, Lee there at, at Washington Lee and Stonewall Jackson associated with VMI. They just took down the VMI statue at uh, at, at um, uh, the, the Jackson statue of VMI. Uh, governor Ralph Northam and the Virginia General Assembly and the last governor did amazing things to change VMI. I was very happy with that. And Debbie Nell has done some things as well. They are deconsecrating uh, Lee Chapel, which when I was there was literally a chapel that worshipped Lee. He was on the altar, and now it is University Chapel, not Lee Chapel, and they're working to to take some of the lost cause elements of the, the things that made that the, um, the, the, the Westminster Abbey of the Confederacy, which is what it was called, the Shrine of the South. The Lexington license plate used to have Shrine of the South. They have changed most of the names of everything in that town now so that it no longer uh, no longer worships these Confederates because, again— they chose treason to preserve slavery. In your acknowledgments, you say one of my heroes is Professor Ted Delaney. He started at Washington Lee as a custodian and eventually became a professor there. Is he African-American? He is. He is a, uh, it unfortunately died at the beginning of 2020, uh, but he is one of, uh, or maybe it's the beginning of 2020, it's the beginning of 2021. He, he died in January of 2021. Um, one of my heroes and, yeah, he started there as a custodian at the age of 19 when Lexington was still probably 30 uh, percent African-American uh, and then became a lab assistant and was there for 20 years as a lab assistant before starting classes. And he graduated the year after I did in 1985 and then eventually got his Ph.D. at William & Mary, spent a year in New York uh, as a professor before coming back to, to WNL, where he became the con- really the the moral conscience of WNL and, and taught the institutional history course there. Um, uh, an unbelievable, I mean, the truest sense of, of the word gentleman. Um, he is absolutely my hero. And what has been great for me is now that I have, now that I not only do I, know, I, I, I see Lee in his proper context, it allows me to find the heroes that I think are true American heroes. And no one is more than Ted Delaney, who grew up and went to a high school in a segregated uh, Lexington, a segregated high school, and yet became professor and eventually professor emeritus uh, at WNL and helped change that institution more than any other person in its history. Um, w- one of the finest Americans I have ever met. What percentage of the students at Washington and Lee uh, are minority? That's a great question. I, I, um, when I was there, it was like one to two percent. I think it's six percent black students there now, but uh, I don't hold me to that. I'm not sure. On September the 28th, 2017, it was a Sunday, and you got up in front of uh, a crowd in, in the Lee Chapel with Robert E. Lee, the marble man, as you call him, right behind you. How did that speech happen, and what did you say there, and what's the reaction on the part of the crowd? Yeah, so, I mean, you have to, if, you, if your listeners, to, to understand that chapel, again, it is a chapel with pews, but no Christian iconography. And in the apse of the chapel, the Holy of Holies, is an altar. And on top of the altar is Lee lying asleep on the battlefield in the whitest of white marbles, um, with his hand on the sword, asleep on the battlefield, ready to rise up for the white people of the South to fight for his social system of slavery. So I was invited by Ted Delaney to give the Constitution Day speech a month after the, uh, the, the horror, the white supremacist horror in Charlottesville in 2017. And I, boy, I went back there and a little nervous in the service, as we say in the Army, because I was going to say, and what I did say was that while I was the proud graduate of Washington Lee, that Lee had chosen treason and, and uh, by, by violating Article 3, Section 3 of the Constitution. He chose treason. And why did he choose treason? 
It was to protect and expand his social system of slavery, treason for slavery. And uh, I had to say my truth. No one had ever done that. And in fact, I looked as soon as I, I said that, I, I went back and looked at this recumbent statue, as they call it. And I know no cracks in the statue. I wasn't swallowed whole in the, in, in the earth. Every people were uncomfortable, but discomfort causes no lasting damage. And so everything was fine. I did that. But but it, it was kind of it was everybody was a hush came over the audience. And when I finished the talk, you know, saying that my my school had the opportunity to do better to address its lost cause roots, to address the history of white supremacy there and change and lead the nation toward that change. Uh, and I believe that it could do it. The, the reaction of the audience, uh, which stunned me, was a standing ovation. And uh, that's when I thought, oh, my gosh, maybe. Uh, but, but I also told it through my lens of story. I told my story. And I, the speech was called Robert E. Lee and Me, the same as the book. And it followed the contours of what the book would be, which is instead of just lecturing them and telling them how terrible they were, to say, hey, listen, I grew up the same way, but you can change, and change is going to make you a better institution. It's made me a better human, and by looking at the facts honestly, you can change, and you can make Washington Lee the school it should be, the school you want it to be, not the school it was. And so the reaction of a standing ovation, I mean, I, I, I was one of the highlights of my career. Anybody stay seated? I, I watched it, and I couldn't tell because the only camera was from the back of the room. I didn't notice it, but I guess somebody told me later that the red red pants of uh, Virginia flaggers did not stand. Uh, so, but, but I didn't notice it when it was there, and somebody told me that much later. But it seemed to me almost everybody stood, and they gave me a standing ovation at the end of my talk, and then we had question and answer, and they gave me another standing ovation after that. So I was uh, incredibly heartened to see the reaction from my alma mater uh, that they understood that change, uh, what Sherlock Holmes says, change is afoot. Uh, you know, they, you have to you have to change. If you don't change, your society is never going to get it's never going to be better. That's the great thing about Americans is that we are OK with change. We like change. And uh, and I think this is one of the ones where understanding who the Confederates were is going to make us a more empathetic and a better country to acknowledge our history. And, and you know, I, I, I think that the only way to prevent a racist future is to first acknowledge and understand our racist past. Interesting, just a small sidebar, is that Constitution Day was mandated through legislation, I believe, uh, brought forth by Senator Robert Byrd of West Virginia, who was originally a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Yes, and it was true. And in fact, for years in the Army, we had to take a Constitution Day quiz. They, they had this sort of video thing that you had to take, and it was from Senator Byrd to make sure you understood that. And he famously had the Constitution in his breast pocket at all times. Uh, and, you know, I, I, you can look at the Constitution a bunch of different ways. I tend to look at it and I believe that it's the same thing that Frederick Douglass said. And Frederick Douglass said in the 1850s that the Constitution is a glorious liberty document. We have gotten things wrong in the Constitution, but it is the basis for, for what we can do as a nation. And remember, we haven't always done that. We've only been a real democracy for 50 years. Before that, mo many people in this country, uh, adults could not vote because of segregation era and disenfranchisement constitutions and laws from each of the states. But we are a democracy now, and that's something we should celebrate. At the same time, we should make sure that we know that there is work to be done to make this country uh, uh, the place it, it can be the place that we want it to be. What uh, we're going to wrap it up here. What's uh, what is the origin of the name uh, Siduli? Okay, great question. So it is. Uh, we, I had a. There's a genealogist in every family, and in our genealogist, uh, which was I think my I don't know an uncle or something like that, went back through and looked at it, and there was a someone came from Italy in the eight, late 1860s, and uh, what his name was, I'm not sure. He was illiterate. And, and in every census from 1870, 80, 90, 1900, 1910, the census knocker would come to the door, knock, open it up, and my ancestor would say something, whatever his name was, and the census taker would write it down. And in each one of those censuses, they wrote something different down. And in no two censuses was it ever written down the same way. So there are parts of my family that pronounce it differently. We pronounce it sigilly. I have no idea if that's right. So it is a, an American name through and through, which is it makes no sense. It changed when we got here as immigrants and changed routinely thereafter. So I have no, this old South legend, I have none of that background in mind. I don't, that's not who I am. 
Uh, I am an American who came, you know, whose ancestors came here with penniless and, uh, and, and should feel very lucky that they came when they did. But so Sigley is maybe Italian, but have no idea other than that. The name of the book is Robert E. Lee and Me. Our guest has been, <clears throat> excuse me, retired general of the United States Army, Ty Sigley. He's a professor emeritus at West Point, currently teaches at Hamilton College in New York. And the subtitle of this book is A Southerner's Reckoning with the Myth of the Lost Cause. Thank you, General. Oh, thank you so much. What a great conversation. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org. 